Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical. Medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, hi, and welcome. I am your host, Emma Gunnar Wardner, and in my nearly 20-year career as a beauty and health writer, I have interviewed a lot of people: supermodels, entrepreneurs, authors, celebrities, and doctors. And many of these conversations had a real impact on me. And I'd come away feeling inspired, excited, informed, and really empowered. And at the back of my mind, I'd always think, I wish I could just publish the tape so people could really feel that conversation. Well, on this podcast, you get to feel the conversation. I talk with experts, guests, and a few friends who I hope will inspire, inform, and empower you, and maybe also challenge you. Whether you're looking for self-help, self-improvement, beauty advice, health insights, business know-how, or just some good old-fashioned life advice and a bit of a laugh. It's all here. Welcome to the show. Dr. Jen Gunter returns to the podcast and in this conversation we explore all things menopause. I am so glad she is back. If you listened to Jen's last visit to the show then you'll know we talked all about women's health in relation to her expertise as an OBGYN, including how to talk about our reproductive health, what we should all know about it and when to seek guidance from a medical professional. I really appreciated Jen's input last time and how she really helped anyone listening understand normal, what was their normal. And that was then empowering to make decisions around anything that might not fit into that bracket. In this episode, we take a deep dive into the topic of menopause and not just the biology of it, but also the narrative around it. When I was reading Jen's latest book, The Menopause Manifesto, which topics of which we discuss at length in this conversation, it struck me how I was never explicitly told that menopause equaled some sort of feminine expiry or female expiry. But that was definitely something I understood to be the case on some level. And this is why what was going to be the menopause Bible, a follow up to her first book, The Vagina Bible, became the menopause manifesto. Because as Jen delved deeper and deeper into her research, it became clear to her that the patriarchal narrative is so unhelpful that knowing how your body works and understanding what's happening to you as you approach and go through the menopause requires a feminist agenda. As she says in the show, it shouldn't be an act of feminism to understand menopause. It shouldn't be an act of feminism to know how your body works. It shouldn't be an act of feminism to talk about your reproductive health. But it is. In this conversation, Jen and I discuss why it's so wrong to think of your last period as an expiry date on your femininity. Why being an empowered person and making empowered choices requires access to accurate information. Why a patriarchal society doesn't get to determine a woman's worth why it's Jen's goal to welcome women across the crimson bridge into the party zone, the lifestyle choices you can make in your 20s and 30s that will positively impact your long-term health and potentially your menopause experience, why the education system is severely lacking in how it teaches sex education by focusing primarily on how not to get pregnant, 
why life can be so much better after menopause, why it's so important to see more women over 50 in fantasy roles so that women can see themselves represented and imagine more possibilities for themselves, how men and women look at the world differently, and there are some superhero references there, why pseudoscience and snake oil have nothing to offer you other than to take your money, and the role of supplementation in treating menopause symptoms and whether anything will actually work. And there's so much more in this episode, actually, including some unnecessary but nonetheless entertaining discussion about superheroes Thor, Chris Hemsworth and Idris Elba. So please buckle up. Here is my full, unedited conversation with Jen and the links to both the Vagina Bible and the Menopause Manifesto and Jen's social media, of course, will be in the show notes. But for now, please join me in welcoming Dr. Jen Gunter back onto The Emma Gunn Show. Returning to the podcast, it's the one and only Jen Gunter. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm so good and I'm so glad to see you. You are uh, OBGYN and writer. You are also, I think you're dubbed on Twitter as like the world's favorite gynecologist. <laughs> and, yeah. yeah. And you have been on the show before. To, we talked about your last book, The Vagina Bible. And so much has happened since then because that was sort of late 2019. A lot has happened in the <laughs> yeah. world and also for you. And now you're back to talk about something that actually I've talked about quite a lot on the podcast because I think the more we talk about it, the better. And I would guess that you would agree, which is the menopause. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. We need to be having lots of conversations. Well, indeed. And I guess one of the things that I really took from just the opening of the book is the biggest problem we have about the menopause is that we don't talk about it enough and when we do talk about it we don't have our facts straight for various reasons no I think that's absolutely true I mean it's basically your last period feels like it's an expiration date in our society, which is absolutely wrong. And I completely reject that. And uh, yeah. And then, so what happens when you don't talk about something, you have charlatans that come in, misinformation spreads. So, you know, sometimes this bad information spreads with good intentions. You know, people think they're sharing something good, but other times the people are just trying to capitalize or profit. And we've certainly seen a rise of all these you know, useless or quasi effective, maybe products for menopause. And so it's like, you know, we have a pink tax and now we have a pinkish gray tax. (laughs) A pinkish gray tax. You're absolutely right. And it's this thing of, so we don't have our information right. And then we're being told, well, you've got several routes that you can take. And one is morally superior to the other. There's the natural route, then there's the medical route. And it's all kind of nonsense, right? Yeah. I mean, it's really, it should really just be this is the information. These are the facts. This is the, this is what we know for sure. These are maybe things that we sort of know and then let people make decisions based on that. You know, I'm a big believer in it's your body and your choice. And, but if you want to be an empowered person and make an empowered choice, you need to have accurate information. So knowing that, for example, about supplement X, that there's no data and, you know, there isn't even really a good biological reason why that might help you and you still want to buy it. Okay. But shouldn't you know that information first? Uh, When I was going through the book, I went through writing a lot of things in capitals, like the things I wanted to remember and the things I wanted to bring up in our conversation. And one of the first things I wrote down in capitals was empowerment requires accurate information. Absolutely. I'm a huge believer in that. You know, you, you can't make any choice 
from an empowered position. If the information is not right, then, you know, then it's just a bad guess. With a, we have this conversation a lot about lots of different areas. So it recently came up, uh, I mean, I would say in the UK, but globally about SPF and bad information and how there's so much bad information out there. And yet the same is true with our our female health. Female health is not, how do you refer to it? Female health, women's health? Um, you know, I think that's even a problem. Like we just right. don't have a good way to talk about it without distilling women to being walking wounds, right? Um, but, you know, we sort of say reproductive health. Although, you know, for men, I don't know, do we, we just, maybe we say men's health. I'm not sure. Maybe I need to do a bit more of a deep dive and figure out how we talk about dude's junk. <laughs> Do you know, one of the other things that I loved is the fact that very early on in the book, you make the point of biologically, uh, women, female is the default. Yeah, as an embryo. (laughs) Isn't that crazy that all of our sort of origin of man myths, you know, whether you're in the Bible, whether you're Greek mythology, it's, you know, the man came first and woman came afterwards. But embryologically, as you know, we all start out with the parts for, um, you know, to sort of be, you know, biologically female, and then it's exposure to testosterone that changes things. So yeah, I just think it's, I think that we've been sold a lie about what it is, um, to, you know, to be a woman, what it is, you know, since, since the beginning of time and, uh, um, and no wonder the patriarchy doesn't want us to have information. And we'll get onto that in a minute because that is a big, it is a big piece of the puzzle, isn't it really? It's like the way that we've been talking about, uh, reproductive health up until now has been so heavily influenced by male voice and male influence, but let's just take a run up to the actual book because it was while you were touring the vagina Bible, and you would mention menopause and all of a sudden the interviewer would latch onto that and you realize that there was a real thirst and hunger for information about the menopause because it was such a gray area. Right. You know, it's always interesting as an OBGYN because I've always known most of this stuff. So it's hard for you to sort of know what other people don't know because I, you know, I've been doing this for so long, but so, yeah. So when I was doing interviews, you know, people were like, Oh, you're on the patch. And then that's all they'd want to talk about. And I'm like, well, it's not like I'm doing some like fancy designer drug. Like, like, okay. And like, I was sort of, I was, I was really taken aback, I suppose. And, um, and then on tour, yeah. When I'd be giving, you know, lectures or doing book signings, which, you know, I miss, but you know, it is, you know, it is what it is right now. Um, that, people would ask about menopause. It was always the question about menopause. We wanted to talk about menopause. And what did I think about this book that was out or that book? And, you know, I didn't really think any of them addressed the subject the way I would want to address it. And I thought, well, I think that the universe is telling me something. And you do like to listen to the universe. Like you're quite, you're quite in tune with those sorts of things, aren't you? Well, I think, you know, it's about, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm certainly not anybody who's into like biorhythms or things like that, but I think I'm, <laughs> I'm really into um, trying to notice the, you know, the information that's out there and, and try to take in, you know, the, the facts and it was sort of, okay, these are a lot of data points. This is, this keeps coming up over and over again. There's obviously something here. And, um, and then I was thinking, wow, I bet if, everybody knew what I knew, wouldn't that be a lot easier? Mm-hmm. Now, tell me about the name of the book. Did that come first? Because that really feels like a statement in and of itself, the, the yeah. menopause manifesto. 
So it's a bit of an interesting story because no, that wasn't, um, I I don't even, I think there was like a working title, like the menopause book, or I think it was the menopause Bible, really. I think it was like the vagina Bible, the menopause Bible. So I think that was kind of my idea. And as I was writing it, it just got more and more feminist. And it wasn't really, that wasn't sort of my original intent. But when you look at you know, the, for example, the old history and how, how menopause was framed as like a pre-death or the, um, the way people have taken advantage of it, both women and men, you know, the way, um, the pharmaceutical industry has weaponized it, the way the so-called natural industry has weaponized it all using the same language of the patriarchy, really. I was just like, oh my God, we need a manifesto. This is just ridiculous. And so, yeah, so it sort of, evolved as, um, as I sort of became an active feminism, I felt writing the book. What do you mean by uh, weaponized when you talk about uh, the various disciplines that have weaponized it? Well, I think that, you know, women have been led to believe that it's a pre-death or death and that, you know, that, that it's just the most awful thing in the whole world. And, um, and I mean, I don't want to sugarcoat aging. I mean, obviously, you know, my knees hurt when I walked up the stairs, but you know, um, we, we, we're somehow able, men can have sore knees, but you know, women are sitting in death's antechamber, you know, <laughs> we've clocked out. We're, we're, we're just waiting. We're just, we're just biding time. Right. And so I think, I think that, you know, that's part of it, just how like, you know, menopause is viewed as a pre-death, but also, you know, this sort of idea that from the fifties, which has been basically since the beginning of time, but this feminine forever concept, you know, that, uh, that women are sort of meant to look a certain way, um, and, uh, act a certain way and biologically behave a certain way. And, you know, that it feels like that almost sort of cartoon version of femininity becomes, uh, something that's held up as a standard for women in menopause. I mean, and I think women are held by that standard, unfortunate standard throughout most of their lives. But mm. for some reason, it's sort of, you know, just all of a sudden now that you can't reproduce is somehow of, of value. And that's like the least important thing. Like that's the least interesting thing about me that I can no longer have children. Like it's the least interesting thing. Like my toenails are more interesting than that. <laughs> That's what I found really interesting in the book, actually, is the fact that it is this almost like this expiry. When you go through the menopause and you're no longer fertile, there's an right. expiry that obviously a man wouldn't experience in the same biological way. And therefore, once that has occurred, there is some like you're past your use by date mm, in this yeah. weird way. And that's there's something that we have just, even though that's never explicitly been said to me, it was something I understood on some level, mm -hmm. which means it's out there. Absolutely. It's this undercurrent in everything. And if you follow that back sort of to the origin, that means then your only value to society is reproduction. Your only value is popping out a baby and your only value is being a receptacle for a penis, right? Like that's, that's what that means. And as I was writing the book, I was like, oh my God, this is what that means. This means that literally I'm a broodmare. This is what society thinks of me. And I reject that. I love it. I just love that you say, I reject it. I reject it. I just, I really enjoy that because that's such a strong, <laughs> it's like Jane Fonda says no is a complete sentence, but I also really yeah. enjoy the way you say, I reject it because that's just as much of a full stop as well. 
Right. Yeah. No, it's just, it's like, no, sorry. Yeah. That's not how it is. You know, a, a, a patriarchal society does not get to determine my worth because I don't, I had nothing to do with creating that patriarchal society. So, you know, let's, uh, let, let's accept that. Right. You know, here we are suffering under rules created by a system designed to oppress us. Now, something someone said to me the other day kind of wound me up a little bit. So I'm going to share it with you because mm -hmm. I've probably created in the five years I've been doing this show between 10 and 15 episodes devoted to the menopause. And a friend said to me, why do you keep creating these episodes? Because you're not even experiencing yet. What, what do you know? And I reject that because the point is that every single woman, hopefully, is going to experience the menopause. And it seems to me like a kind of a dumbass move to only inform yourself about it as and when it's happening, when you have the opportunity to inform yourself way in advance and prepare. Absolutely. I mean, when you're prepared for something, then it's less shocking when it happens. You know what the warning signs are. You know, you, you're not as scared. Uh, so absolutely. And also there's things, choices that you might make about your body in your 20s or 30s that could impact your menopause, right? So um, somebody who uh, is deciding, you know, maybe they want to have a hysterectomy. I'm just for abnormal bleeding. Well, you know what? That could lower your age of menopause. You know, even you leave your ovaries in, the surgery can actually then impact your age of menopause. And so, you know, then if you go through menopause, for example, at 45, so a little bit early, that could have been because you had a hysterectomy. Now, knowing that information in your 30s helps you make an informed choice. You might say, ooh, I I'm, I'm not sure I want to increase my risk, or you may still say, listen, I absolutely want to have that hysterectomy. These fibroids are bleeding all over the place and it's ridiculous. So then you're prepared when you might have hot flashes in your early forties that, oh, the, I, I knew this could happen because of, because I had the surgery. So, you know, I think that knowing about what's happening to your body is very powerful and you don't want to learn about things after the fact or while you're stumbling through. Don't you want like to plan your trip? <laughs> yeah. That's, is that the way to look at it? Like plan it as yeah, a Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's a party boat. I think we need to, we totally need to rebrand it, you know? Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's a welcome, welcome across the Crimson Bridge to the party zone. <laughs> I'm so turning that into a meme, Jen. I'm so turning <laughs> Yes. <laughs> okay. So let, let's talk about the things that one can do to prepare because I think the model that I had in my mind, and again, not something I was told, just something I kind of understood from the information I had received over the years, was that you reach an age where suddenly you start sleeping terribly. You probably soak the bed with your sweat at night. You have hot flashes when you don't particularly want them. And then you go to a doctor and you say, I am showing at least three signs of menopausal symptoms. Please give me HRT. You're given HRT and then you go on your way. And I think what I'm really beginning to understand for the conversations I'm having is you can take a much longer run up and it can be things like lifestyle choices that you make in your twenties and thirties before you even start talking about hormone replacement therapy or having any kind of interaction with a medical professional. Is that correct? Uh, well, you wouldn't necessarily have symptoms typically like in your twenties or early thirties, but the menopause transition, what some people call perimenopause or premenopause can be quite a, a number of years and it, and people can have symptoms many years before their period stops. 
And I think it's also good to know that there are many treatment options, certainly menopausal hormone therapy, or I think it's still called HRT in the UK is one option, but there's lots of other options too. And so I think it's good for people to, to, to have the whole gamut and to, to see what, what they want to be on, what sort of, you know, fits for them, or if they even want to take something at all. So, um, you know, it depends on how bothersome your symptoms are, but I think this, idea that people show up with symptoms and it's true, they often are just given a prescription and they're not told about all these other things that are important or about the health concerns. You know, um, for example, if you have a lot of hot flushes, we think that you may have an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. So knowing that you might be say, Ooh, I need to be more careful about getting my lipids checked and getting my blood pressure checked. I need to be more on the ball. So information is always good. That was actually something I wrote down quite early on as well, was just, okay, what are the implications on my health? Because you're absolutely right. There are, they can be signposts for other things that just mm -hmm. mean that you can take precautions and make good lifestyle choices. That doesn't have to be about a prescription. That can be about exactly as you say, getting your lipids checked or maybe changing your diet if you're worried mm -hmm. about cardiovascular issues. Yeah. I mean, so I knew as I was sort of ramping into my menopause transition that there was an increased risk of type two diabetes associated with it. Um, and most of it was related to, you know, depositing visceral fat, fat around the belly. And so I really embarked on a pretty intensive training program. I, I got a, um, I fortunate enough, the privilege that I could hire a trainer I started working out much more. And actually I was in the best shape of my life during my menopause transition. I mean, I was, you know, running half marathons. I was, you know, I was in really great shape and that, um, you know, that, and then of course, you know, I wrote a book, The Vagina Bible, and I stopped exercising as much. And, um, and then I was like, and now I'm back into it. But, um, but I, and it was really sad to see how quickly there was deterioration, you know, at this age when you stop working out. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, having that information allows you to then, you know, head into your transition, which, um, with sort of a, a full tank of gas or, you know, all the, you know, yeah, you've got all your, all your tools lined up, you know, depending on I sort of which, uh, you know, which obstacle you're going to meet on the road. Is being physically fit a really, is it a factor in how good, your good in inverted commas, your menopause might be? Well, there aren't a lot of links between sort of symptoms. And so that's not as well understood. So for example, exercise is probably not going to treat your hot flushes. However, for your, if you're just looking at your overall health perspective, yeah. And I think that, um, there's two aspects when we talk about physical activity. So one is your aerobic exercise where you go out and you sweat and your heart rate is up, but the other is how active you are physically active during the day. And both of those are super important for your bone health, um, for reducing your risk of diabetes and for your cardiovascular health. And so, you know, the, the studies tell us that the majority of women um, in their menopause transition and menopause are not physically active enough. And, you know, when people are saying they're looking for a sort of quote, quote, natural ways to, to stay healthy, like that's it. I think that that's one of the big ways. And, um, you know, so somebody who's walking to the shops two or three times a day, who's, you know, takes public transportation and is able to get out and about more is probably doing their daily activity. But, you know, I was very mindful of like during the pandemic, like I felt like I turned into a piece of veal at the beginning. Like I was just, 
because nobody left the house, right? And and we're all just sitting there like all day. And you're scared to leave the house because you don't, we didn't even know what this virus was, right? People were dying. It was awful. We were seeing the news from Italy and it was like, oh my God. And so I'm sure there were some days I walked 600 steps, mm. right? And, um, and so you don't, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, four or five months later, you're trying to get more active and you're like, whoa. So I think that, um, yeah. So physical activity, that was a very long winded answer for that's, um, that's like money in the bank. That, that's okay. Money in the bank. I like that. But also one of the things I've started doing again, because I've heard that this would be good for me is I'm, I'm mindful to make sure that I'm lifting weights because mm-hmm. I don't want my bones to disintegrate in the long term. Yeah. So, um, so resistance training, um, is very, is very helpful as well as weight bearing exercises. Uh, the reason why lifting weights is super helpful is building muscle mass because we all lose muscle mass with age. Everybody does, you know, even elite athletes, but during the menopause transition, the years leading up to menopause, we have an accelerated loss of muscle mass. And so when people talk about the slowing of metabolism, that's really what it is because it's your muscles that burn your calories. So the fewer mus- the less muscle mass you have, the less calories you burn. So the way that you can absolutely slow that loss is with exercise um, and specific like weightlifting, that type of thing. And so that's an incredibly healthy thing to do. And I think that, um, it's something that I wish I had started earlier in, in my life. So if I were in my mid thirties and saying, how am I going to protect myself in the best way possible? I would have, I wished I had, you know, started weights or, you know, back then. One of the things I had to ask myself was when I first learned about my menstrual cycle, when I was in school, did I ever have any notion that it would one day stop? I don't know as if I was ever told about, I was told about how to prepare for it beginning. Um, but I don't think I was ever informed in that same sort of realm of school and the pamphlets that you'd get that there would be an end point. And one of the things that you say right at the top of the book, and I'm sorry, I'm going to share this, is if menopause were on Yelp, it would have a one-star review, <laughs> which is perfect, yeah. which is just so perfect. And the other thing uh, to sort of lead into that is that you refer to it as it's puberty in reverse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so there's a couple of things. So you're absolutely right about the lack of discourse about menopause with sort of quote, quote, sex education, because sex education is about keeping women pure and not pregnant, right? It's you learn about your menstrual cycle. So you can be in servitude to being pregnant or not pregnant when the patriarchy tells you to. So it's nothing practical. You don't learn about how to have a good orgasm. You don't learn that foreplay is important. You learn nothing useful about sex except how to prevent pregnancy. But even then it's often presented in a way that scares people and that's probably not the best way to learn. So so yeah, and people don't learn about menopause at all. It's just not discussed because who wants to talk about an expiration date? And uh, you know, I think we should be explaining to kids in school reproductive biology as opposed to sex education because they're different things sex Mm -hmm. education is and when i say sex ed i mean the awful sex ed that we're doing which isn't even really sex ed it's sort of period it's like pregnancy scaring um so yeah i think we should teach reproductive biology so people understand the basics and understand how their body works and then if you understand how it works then you can learn how to prevent pregnancy if you want you know about menopause you know about all these things so i agree with that 
Well, it makes sense. The one star review on Yelp makes complete sense. If you don't know necessarily about the menopause, you're going to be like, well, I didn't, right. pay for, I didn't sign up for this. No right. one told me about yeah. this. Exactly. One star. Yeah. I mean, the, the analogy that I give is so yeah, puberty in reverse. Absolutely. So just like when you're going from a child to an adult, you're going through hormonal chaos. That is the menopause transition. Same thing, hormonal chaos. You may have unpleasant symptoms, right? So during puberty, you have maybe acne, you have growing pains. Um, all of a sudden your body is so big and you're tripping over yourself or your boobs all of a sudden grow overnight. And what's up with that? Uh, so, you know, you have all of these body changes that, that are a bit they're concerning and weird, but you know what? Everybody knows they're going to happen. So you're not so freaked out about it, or most people know it's going to happen. So, so yeah. So, and just like we don't need tests to see when puberty ends, we don't need tests to know when your menopause transition ends. It's a clinical diagnosis. Everybody, you know, a lot of people get sort of hung up on, well, how do I know if I'm really menopausal? Well, it's a diagnosis based on, have you not had a period for a year? That's really it in the right age group. And sometimes people get worked up over that, but nobody needs a test to tell if you've gone through puberty and you're an adult. We all accept that. Mm. We all accept that, oh yeah, you know what? I, I'm grown probably for about a year and a half and boy, my acne has been pretty stable. And so I'm probably done. And so if we accept that uh, with puberty and the transition to adulthood. So I just like to kind of put that out there for people. Mm -hmm. And if someone has had uh, a really easy puberty, and they just blossomed and there were no real issues. Are they going to have that kind of experience with menopause? And equally, if somebody had a very turbulent uh, puberty, and I'm talking as someone who had severe PCOS, so that was not, <laughs> those were not my finest years. So I've all, that's one of the reasons why I always have one eye on the menopause, I think, uh -huh. because it's a part of me that's a little bit fearful that I'm going to, what I had on the way up, I'm going to have mm -hmm. on the way down. See how I use the up and down? That, would, that must be very <laughs> disappointing. But is there a symmetry between your puberty and your menopause? We don't have any data to say that. Um, so, uh, so I would tell people that I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't worry about that. Uh, you know, I think that, uh, in fact, I would actually tell people not to worry at all um, because you don't know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And actually there's, um, there's a little bit of data that says that when you fear the menopause, when you fear what's going to happen, that you, your symptoms may be amplified. Um, because fear amplifies symptoms. I mean, if you're, if you stub your toe and you're afraid, your toe hurts more. I mean, that's just the way it is. Your brain, your brain chemistry controls everything, you know, that is sort of your volume. It, it doesn't mean things are in your head as in fake. It means the chemicals in your brain assemble everything that you feel, whether you feel a hot flush, whether you stub your toe and it's painful, all of those, the, all of those sensations are assembled in your brain. So it, it makes sense that, you know, if you've, you know, if you're sort of diverting signals towards sort of fear and anxiety that that can amplify certain things. Um, so I think, and I personally think the answer is education, just like you're doing right. Being mm -hmm. informed, I think is that, you know, the number one uh, way to, um, to reduce anxiety. Yeah. And equally, just to reference again, the kind of symmetry, there's also, I've definitely read more than once, the idea that you have a similar, or you're likely to have a similar menopause to the one your mum had. And is there a bit more data actually to support that? Yeah, it's not so much linked. Um, I mean, you know, the, the better link is actually with a sister. 
Um, and there was an interesting study actually from the UK that looked at uh, family units where there was mother and daughter, but also sister, sister. And you have about, you have 50% of the same genetics as your mother and 50% of the same genetics as your sister. And your um, age of menopause was much more tied to your sister's age than your mother's age. And so the hypothesis is, is that, you know, there's a huge environmental factor because your mother grew up and lived most of her life in a different environment than you grew up and lived your life, right? But your sister grew up and lived her life generally in the same environment as you. So, I mean, obviously there can be differences, but, you know, so, um, but your sister would have had a more similar life environment than your mother. And so, so yeah, so environment plays a big role as well. So it's really multifactorial. So that was something that really, really interested me, actually, is the um, in the book, The Biology, where you talk about the biology of menopause and the brain ovary connection. And you do, do talk about things like trauma and how mm-hmm. childhood trauma can impact on hormonal health and all of these things. Would you mind explaining that a little bit? Because I, I honestly found that mind blowing. I'd never, never even thought to do that connection. I just thought the data and research that you must have had to have gone through must have been vast. Well, actually the, the whole childhood trauma thing has a little bit of an interesting backstory. So it's called ACEs, the adverse childhood experiences. And there has been a big push um, in the US uh, to get physicians, what we call ACEs, ACES, adverse childhood experiences aware. And recognizing that, that traumas that we experience as a child actually wires our brain differently. You know, when you are um, exposed to stressful situations, how you may cope with that stress or the actual biology of the stress can cause different areas of your brain to enlarge and strengthen. And sometimes those areas aren't things that are gonna be super helpful. And we often see these ramifications years later. So, you know, trauma leaves a memory basically. And I got really interested in it because we had to do this uh, online course to maintain our license certification. This was about a year and a half ago. And I was like, oh God, another stupid course to do. Oh, I can't believe I have to do this stupid ACEs thing. And I know anything about it, right? Like I didn't know anything about it. It was just one of those things I had to do. And I was reading the course and learning about it. I was like, oh my God, this is fascinating. And that makes so much sense. And I'm so glad I was forced to do this because on the surface, I thought it was silly. And once I was educated about it, again, you know, getting properly educated, that's all I could think about was, well, my God, that makes so much sense. That's, that's, and that's, you know, that's why you can revisit, you know, you, you can experience health problems from trauma years later, decades later, because it's basically rewiring your body, affecting your immune system, affecting your, your brain development. And so, yeah, it can even have an impact on age of menopause. So to give you an idea of sort of the absolute sort of like the structural physiologic changes of childhood trauma is, you know, it's something that we all need to be mindful of. And so, yeah, I just sort of became this like ACEs evangelist afterwards. Cause I was like, oh my God, everybody has to know about this. This is like, you know, um, thank God for forced education. I was just like, I, I couldn't, 
I, I couldn't like not see it then everywhere. And, you know, you can't obviously go back in time and fix that, but even just acknowledging to, you know, asking people about their traumatic experiences, letting them have safe spaces to talk about it can be helpful. Um, but it's also important to know to predict risk. You know, if you've had multiple adverse childhood experiences, you may be at higher risk for heart disease or diabetes or dementia. And so when you know your risk, maybe then you might be more likely to say, I'm going to try to do an exercise program because you know what? Exercise is going to protect my heart, going to protect my bones and reduce my risk of dementia. It's another thing as well that uh, removes this notion that menopause is something that come you're on your journey of life and it comes up unexpectedly on the road (laughs) right and it it's been with you the whole way not just this thing that suddenly you have to swerve around or you hit and then you know you're on the side of the road trying to change a tire right or it's like a bad cartoon and you're like whacked in the face with a two by four you know that says menopause on it whack um (laughs) yeah uh yeah I think that you know the our our menopause is written in our ovaries before we're born you know, uh, now the actual details of the story might not be because, for example, adverse childhood experiences, environmental exposures, you know, whether you smoke, all, many different things, um, you know, whether you're on birth control, lots of things can affect. So there's, but the but sort of, I would say, like the basic bones of this story, uh, because we are always meant to, um, to sort of use up our egg supply. Population. That's part of the deal. That's not a flaw. And I think that's the big thing. That's why menopause, I think, has been viewed so negatively because there's been this root problem that people have. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Assumed or, or carried forward the false narrative that your ovaries stopping ovulating is a flaw. And it's not, it's part of evolution's plan. And when you reframe it that way, it sounds totally different. It's only recently I had a a, a UK-based doctor, a lovely lady called Dr. Anise Mukherjee on the podcast recently. And she brings a tone to this conversation that I really appreciated because she actually talks about the fact that life can be better after the menopause. And that was definitely not something that, I was really hearing a lot. Do you think that, mm-hmm. I mean, I know the word thrive can sometimes jar people, but do you think <laughs> that actually life post-menopause can, can actually be of better quality than, well, A, that people anticipate, but also than potentially life before? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that you're, you're, you're doing everything that you were capable of before. It's just now you don't have to be bothered about bleeding. 
<laughs> so you have that burden taken off. Um, I, I'm not one who believes that, you know, my hormones make me amazing or not amazing. I don't believe that, you know, my worth has anything to do with whether, you know, I'm making estrogen or not, but yeah, this idea that, that, that life is going to be awful after menopause is really just part of that patriarchal narrative. And I like to tell people, you know, after, when I was after menopause is when I, you know, got, got my first writing gig with the New York times. Um, I published a New York times bestselling book when I was in menopause first time, you know, my book before menopause was not a bestseller. Um, I met the love of my life menopausal. I mean, seriously, I think that we, this idea that it's pre-death hangs over us so much. I remember when I was dating in my forties, my best friend said, you better hurry up with that. Cause you're almost menopausal and men can smell that shit. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> Jen, what? And I said, well, I don't want a man like that. <laughs> <laughs> right okay I'm trying really hard my you should see my brain is like <laughs> my brain cells are scrabbling around for it must be something to do with pheromones but that's not a real thing is it no no but she's just like you know you're you're you know you're gonna start looking old as in quotation marks like what a patriarchal society thinks and I'm like well I don't want a guy like that like I've already I, I've already been with awful men. I don't want to, I, I don't want to be with awful men anymore. I want to be with an amazing man or I'd rather not, you know? So I think that, um, yeah, it's, it's just, you hear that, but you know, think about it. When I say there's no culture of menopause, all we see all these superheroes are men, right? With big muscles. Okay. Yeah. Now we have like whatever Captain Marvel and we have Wonder Woman, but that's like a small percentage. And how many amazing women do we see on the screen who aren't like a troubled lady detective who can't find a man because she's too married to her work. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so she might be sexy, but you know, but she's untouched. She's too harsh. She's too cold. She's, she's barren. You know, you sort of get that sort of, you know, that type you get like a, a daughtery old lady, or you get a bunch of women who are giggling about whether they're going to have sex or not. Like you, there's no, like, like just regular women characters who are in their fifties and sixties and seventies. That's why I'm so excited for the new fast and furious nine that's coming out because Helen Mirren is like all tricked out and she's shooting guns and just being such a badass and how can society imagine that a 65 year old man can do that? And that's totally acceptable, but a 65 year old woman. <gasps> so, I mean, it's a fantasy, it's a movie. So I, we need to see more women over 50 in fantasy roles, because when you can see yourself represented, then you can imagine more possibilities for yourself. You know what? It's so true. If you can't see it, then how can you be it? Yeah. I, you know, and I never really thought about it. Actually, this is a weird story, but until I saw the movie Wonder Woman, I'd never really thought about the fact there were no, that, that all superheroes were white men. Like I'd never thought about that, mm -hmm. but they, that's what they all were. Right. Cause mm -hmm. even like in the Marvel universe, like black widow doesn't have superpowers. So, you know, 
And then I walked out of that movie seeing Wonder Woman. And I like, I wanted to punch a thousand dudes. And (laughs) And I was like, oh my God, that's what it's like to see someone who's like you kicking ass on screen. And that made me think about all the people who don't get to see that, right? Um, you know, so, you know, you could think about, you know, people of all different, you know, racial backgrounds, they don't have that representation. People of all different ages don't have that representation. And so I think that, yeah, when we when we confine menopausal women to these sort of, um, these archetypes on TV and in movies that suit male patriarchal narratives, um, we're also really just, doing it we're we're closing down imagination for for women mm. and for men and is it in any way disappointing that gal gadot is just so unbelievably beautiful and that's our representation but i guess if you've got muscly superhero actors then well, she can have a pass yeah i mean all super i mean you know look at look at chris hemsworth and mm-hmm, i know, have chris evans yes yes exactly right i mean they are i don't they're like they're mm-hmm you know, gods in men's body, you know? So, I mean, yeah. Uh, so even the sort of quote, quote, frumpy dudes are still like pretty hot, right? So, uh, yeah. So I think that, yes, it's, I think that men don't judge themselves. So I think a man looking at Thor wouldn't say, oh, cause I think men look at Thor and they see themselves. They think that's what they look like. And women look at Wonder Woman and they say, that's what I don't look like. Oh, that's what I think. So I think men take away the positives and lift themselves up because that's what society does for them. And women compare themselves. So that's, oh, sorry about that. I had a, there's some kind of notification going on. No, no, I I can't hear it. We're all good. (laughs) Okay. All right. Sorry. Then it's just happening in my head. Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, but yeah, no, I really, really believe that men see a superhero and they take away what lifts them up and women look at things and we look at what we don't have. We look at how we're not that because that's what the patriarchy has told us to do. That That is fascinating. So a man can view everything as, a, as something with which to embolden themselves, whereas women will look at the equivalent and see it as a stick with which to beat themselves. Yeah, I totally believe that. I mean, obviously there's exceptions, but yeah. Um, so so when I watched Wonder Woman, I took that away as any woman can be Wonder Woman. You know, I like, I, I you know, I took that away and thought, you know, that, and, I, and it probably didn't hurt that, you know, the Amazons, you know, the Amazon queen was, you know, what, you know, was a little bit, you know, actually was allowed to have some wrinkles mm-hmm. and, you know, Robin Wright Penn was allowed to look, you know, you know, her age. So I think that, um, that that was helpful, but, you know, they all also had, you know, they were supposed to be Greek goddesses, right? So, you know, every one of their bodies, like they were all different shapes, but they were all just, each one was like, whoa, whoa, what? Yeah. Just yeah. amazing in different ways. So well, one of, one of them is Dukes and Cruz. I think that's how you say her name. And she's just, the supermodel who's unbelievable and I think there was this lingering shot on her abs and I was like oh my god and I know she said yeah. something like three kids anyway we're digressing <laughs> into, into talk because I do like a superhero movie so we could definitely get lost in there but um actually probably the fact that you've talked about when you watched Wonder Woman you saw every woman the potential of every woman leads me actually really nicely into something else I wrote down in capitals which is the dedication in the book, which is for every woman, your awesomeness is unrelated to your estrogen. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, the, that's the patriarchal narrative is that, you know, you're, you're at servitude of your ovaries and this feminine forever concept. And um, I just, that's just the furthest thing from the truth. You know, your, your estrogen production is the least interesting thing about you. I really believe that. Um, and I think, yeah, we just distill women. I think that's why, you know, to sort of circle back to what we talked about at the beginning, this is why I became a manifesto because it just was, the more I wrote about it and the more I read and the more I was sort of talking to women, I was like, oh my God, this is the way people feel in menopause is this culmination of the weight of patriarchy. And I got so angry about it because as I write in the book, you know, women by and large bear the burden of reproduction from the beginning of time, right? So for us to walk upright and have be smart, and be able to invent things and become the humans we are, you have to get a big baby head through a small pelvis because you need a small pelvis to be able to walk upright. And you need a big head so you can have a big brain. The problem is putting a big head through a small hole isn't good. It causes trauma, but you can't traumatize the baby. Otherwise that doesn't work for evolution. So the person that gets traumatized is the person having the baby and they have to suck it up. And so, you know, the trauma of reproduction, and I would also add that that includes heavy periods, painful periods, um, having an immune system that, um, that increases your risk for autoimmune conditions, having a biology that gives you polycystic ovarian syndrome. Every single thing about our biology, when it goes awry, is, is a complication of being wired for reproduction, because evolution only has to be good enough. And as long as women can suck it up, as long as they can suck up their heavy periods, suck up being torn open with the delivery, suck up the low blood count and low iron from breastfeeding, you know, as long as they can suck all that up, evolution works. And so I was thinking that, wow, we've, we, we've really been sold a bill of goods, right? We, you know, men have, there's no physical trauma with, you know, reproduction. They don't, bear the physical carnage. Oh, and also we get to be paid less too, right? Um, and, and when we ask for childcare, we're just, you know, useless. So there's all that too. Um, and that, you know, menopause is just another extension of that. For us to have evolved the way we did, to have all this trauma, we needed caretakers who could help raise children because you can't feed your two-year-old if you've just had a baby. You can't go out and gather roots and berries and get shelter. And that's how grandmothers helped. But grandmothers could only be helpful if they didn't have young children. So that's why reproduction has to slow down. So your, your daughter or son can have more children if you're a helpful grandmother. And so having all of the osteoporosis, the heart disease, those are byproducts of menopause, but menopause is needed for evolution. So again, it's just one more way that we have to suck it all up. And I was just like, I'm done, done with it. Done with this patriarchy. We, there should be statues to, to, to ancestral women everywhere. Statue of Liberty should be holding up a uterus. <laughs> yeah, I, seriously. Or, you know, like, I mean, think about it. We, you know, all these historical statues are of, you know, old dudes or women with impossible breasts, gravity defying breasts and abs, you know? Um, and yeah, I just think that, you know, we've been sold this narrative, but really ha 
having the reproductive biology of a uterus and ovaries um, comes with quite a, uh, you know, uh, um, quite a toll. Mm. And, and I think that um, we've been penalized for it and that needs to end. This is what really, really struck me because when we last spoke and we talked about the vagina Bible, it was very much right. How am I going to have a conversation with an OBGYN, with a qualified doctor with years and years of experience? How am I going to get your expertise on the show? And that's your medical expertise. And yet what I feel has happened in the time since we last spoke is it's a bigger project now. It's it's still that, but it's now about changing the narrative, changing the tone, changing the perception, which has nothing to do with a medical degree, right? It's about, it's, it's a different type of education. It's about don't accept any of this nonsense and I will back it up with the science, but just as a human being, human to human, don't accept this. Yeah. Well, I think that it's become this way because it's become pretty clear that to knowing how your body works is a feminine, it requires a feminist agenda. It shouldn't be, right? It's like everybody show, it shouldn't be an act of feminism to understand menopause. It shouldn't be an act of feminism to know about your periods. It shouldn't be an act of feminism to get medical care when it's not working right, Mm -hmm. but it is, and it shouldn't be. And so I think that to break that down, if you're someone who doesn't have a medical degree, you don't, or isn't in this field, you can't actually see sort of where the problems are. Like you need to know this, this is actually something you really need to know. Um, and so that's kind of what I'm hoping to do is to, to sort of raise the general knowledge level about biologically what's happening to your body. Mm-hmm. So one, you can be, you can learn how to advocate for it. But the consequence of that is then you actually see all the ways it's been weaponized against you. Wow. And is that something that perhaps on the tour or just when you're speaking to women and you you just hear the way that they're talking about how they've been spoken to about the menopause or what they might be going through? Yeah. Are they, are they, are they um, complicit in diminishing their own experience without even realizing it? Well, I think it's, I mean, I think it's hard because if you've always been told to shut up or told that it's unimportant or that, you know, you're being dramatic about your symptoms. So I think that I, I think many women do go in and advocate and get shut down. Um, but I also think some women don't advocate because they've sucked it up for so long. This is just one more thing to suck up, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you sucked up your painful periods and you sucked up your pain with sex and you were, you were turned away from a doctor for those important things, why would you think medicine has anything to offer you now? But it does. Right. It does. It does. Snake oil and pseudoscience have nothing to offer you except taking your money away. Um, <laughs> and yeah, but I think it's also important to also acknowledge that we don't always have answers for every symptom um, because science sometimes just doesn't have answers. We haven't caught up yet or things are really complex or in the case of menopause, it may be more than one thing, right? So when your hormones are changing in your late forties, that's also generally a time when people are, you know, they're also aging. So you might have age-related concerns. You may have accumulated medical conditions as you age. So it's not just the wear and tear on your parts, but maybe now you also have diabetes. So you're accumulating medical conditions along the way. And then maybe you have past traumas that are coming home to roost. And, you know, 
when I started my menopause transition, my kids were in middle middle school, which is like the worst time. Your kids are like, when your kids are going through puberty and middle school is awful, you know, for those in the UK, that's like grade six to grade eight. And it's just the worst time. It's the worst. So, you know, my kids are going through a stressful time. So all of these things are kind of happening at the worst, I think at like the worst time in your life. So, or, you know, some women are going through menopause when their kids are leaving home um, or, some people have been together for 20 years and now they're getting a divorce. So all these things are happening. Um, another phenomenon I've seen is a lot of people who um, have a lot of close girlfriends and maybe they themselves don't have kids. All their, they start to sort of lose their circle of friends because when people have kids, they kind of tend to gravitate together and sometimes people get excluded. So then all of a sudden you find yourself lonely for other reasons and now you're starting your menopause transition. So I think, you know, the take home message I would say is it can be menopause, but remember, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. Mm. And actually, funny you say that you just sparked an old memory. I distinctly remember being after school, going with my mum to the doctor and sitting in the waiting room while she went in to go and see the GP about her menopausal symptoms and almost coming out and being like, yes, they're putting me on the patch. I can't remember Mm. explicitly that, but I do remember. So I must have been, I don't know, 12, 13, 14, Mm -hmm. something like that. Um, One other thing I wanted to ask you about was when you're talking about trauma and talking about all the other things that kind of be the threads that influence menopause and health overall, something that comes up time and time again on this podcast is the value in slowing down. And this is whether I speak to a neuroscientist, whether I speak to somebody like Wim Hof. And I wonder whether this is something that you would advise and recommend in that we live in such a knee-jerk society, knee-jerk reaction society, everything's so fast-paced. And actually there is a hell of a lot of benefit of actually slowing down maybe I don't know how you feel about meditation or any of those sorts of practices but is that something that would be a good lifestyle choice for somebody who's listening to this thinking something I can implement is just making sure my pace of life isn't so frenetic because that could have a positive outcome in my health overall and including my menopause um I don't think you can really say that because some people like I like I hate meditation I think it's awful. I like, I have no interest in it whatsoever. I've tried. I'm like, I don't get it. It's just not for me. Um, so I think people, I, I, you know, I think that what we do know are like the healthiest things for people are, are, are dietary changes and exercise. Those are the healthiest things. And I would put, you know, if, if you like meditation and you like it and it works for you, great. That's excellent. I think that, um, different things can work for different people. So can meditation help some people when they're, when they have anxiety? Absolutely. Um, you know, so lots of people have different, you know, different methods that kind of help them. So I personally don't see like, a. I think there's value in vacation time. I think there's value in self-care and I think self-care can mean different things to different people. So I think that if slowing down or meditation is self-care, um, then that's great. Um, you know, if, uh, going for a five hour hike is self-care, great. Reading a book is self-care. Great. Like, you know, if I have an hour to me, I, I wouldn't want to meditate. I would want to read a book. I'd want to get, I would want to read a good book. So, you know, I think that I would say, I sort of view it as, I don't think we do enough self-care and that can mean different things for different people. Mm -hmm. And it just, so it doesn't have to mean slowing down. 
Sometimes self-care is speeding up. Mm, that's true. Getting out and doing something that is also yeah. true. You know, um, or doing an exciting new project or, you know, it's, so it just, it's just different things, you know, or shoe shopping. Uh, that's yeah, self-care. Well, yeah. Oh God. I, I haven't, I haven't shopped for shoes in a long time. <laughs> That's another story. Now, whenever I have, uh, menopause comes up in the Facebook group for the podcast, there's a lot of uh, questions or people asking about the kind of supplements they should be taking. So seeing as you are the world's greatest OBGYN, <laughs> do, do you have a stance on supplementation for mitigating so someone who's maybe in their early 40s is thinking I want to start taking something so that I can ease my way in or someone who maybe is experiencing symptoms are there supplements that work basically no um and I think that people don't like to hear that so uh so I let's break supplements down into two things so there are things that are single um single ingredients that definitely have been shown to have some benefit, but not for symptoms. So if you don't get enough calcium in your diet, then a calcium supplement is definitely a good idea. So you should look at your calcium intake. And when you're menopausal, you want 1200 milligrams of calcium a day. So if you're not getting enough calcium, you absolutely should have a supplement. If you're 50 and older, and also depending on where you live, a vitamin D supplement may also be indicated. Vitamin D helps you absorb calcium. Uh, you make it from your skin with the sun. So, you know, if you're living in the North of England, for example, you maybe don't have like a lot of sun. My family lives there and they like basically tell me they have like a week a year or something. Um, so uh, if, side note, I was uh, talking to my cousin when we, uh, she's, she lives in Durham and she has an AGA, right? Like the oven that's on all the time, which is like people don't have them here. And I said, so what happens like in the summer when it's really hot? And she's like, that doesn't happen. What are you even talking about? <laughs> <laughs> it's not like ever too hot to be in the kitchen. So anyway, I, I wish that wasn't true, but it kind of is, especially, especially Durham way. Yeah. So, you know, so you may need to take a vitamin D supplement. Absolutely. Um, if you're vegan, you may need to take a vitamin B12 supplement um, and maybe an iron. Um, and those are things to talk individually, you know, with your doctor and to look at your diet. Certainly there are fortified yeasts that can, you know, some people may not need to take a vitamin B12. So those are things that are more for your overall health, right? You don't feel symptoms of vitamin D deficiency. You don't feel symptoms of vitamin B12 deficiency until it's like really far gone, right? So, but when most people are talking about supplements, they're talking about things that they can take to um, either sort of do something like overall, like health-wise, or to reduce symptoms? And the answer is basically no, there really aren't any. So um, there's a couple of things. So maybe S-Equal, which is sort of a phytoestrogen supplement might help some symptoms, but the data is not very good, right? Um, and uh, there's also a bee pollen extract that might help symptoms. It's only one study. But apart from that, all of these things that say ovary support or menopause support are just all a bunch of bullshit. Well, this is, I mean, is this, are these fires that you're constantly having to fight, Jen? Because I know that you're very active on social media and I see you uh, calling people out and shutting people down. And basically, I think the, uh, the last thing I saw was somebody was trying to discredit an actual doctor or scientist. And you were like, come on, let's listen to the person who's qualified, not the person who's got something to sell. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, all these people. So the one piece of advice I would give is that if someone is selling your product, you cannot take health advice from them. 
they cannot be your pharmacy and your physician, basically. Uh, so, you know, if someone's telling you, I have this great supplement for menopause that I'm selling, then you should just like not listen to that person at all because that's bias. It's no different than a, would you get your information about depression from a drug company that sells an antidepressant? No, most people would not. So why would you get your information about a supplement for menopause from the person selling or endorsing the supplement? It's no different. So you should treat every single supplement the way you treat a prescription because they should be held to the same standard. Um, and certainly in the US, they're not. They, you, you know, there is one study of black cohosh, which is um, often recommended for menopausal symptoms and it doesn't help. Um, where 25% of the products didn't even contain any black cohosh, 25%. I am so sick honestly and tired of hearing about products, whether it's vitamins, supplements, or face creams or beauty products where they say they've got something in them. And then when you turn it around and you look at the inky list, there is trace amounts, if any. Right. Well, in this study, what they thought was, okay, well, maybe people were accidentally picking like a plant next to black cohosh, right? Like maybe it's like accident. Okay. Like it shouldn't happen. You should have quality control, but no, the herb that was in there isn't, wasn't, so black cohosh is from North America, wasn't native to North America. So it was, you know, on purpose, they just put something else in. So, um, and also many supplements are associated with liver failure. So the number one cause of medication associated liver failure are supplements just overdosing your system with a load. No, of stuff some of them are, have toxic. Some of them are toxic ingredients. Yeah. Many of them are adulterated with pharmaceuticals. So most, many weight loss supplements, for example, have stimulants in them. Um, many of these. So if you're, if you're taking over the counter supplement for hot flushes, it could have estrogen. You don't know, you know, so would you accept, nobody would accept at the grocery store. You're going to go buy a tin of beans. Would you accept that it might not be beans or the beans could have dirt or the beans, maybe half of them are chickpeas, half of them are beans. No one would accept that. If you opened one can of beans from, you know, a grocery store, Wait Rose, right? That's a grocery store in England. I love right? that you know Waitrose, yes. <laughs> so, so if you open, and I don't, I'm not meaning to slag on Wait Rose, but it's just the only name I could think of. Um, <laughs> is that, uh, you know, if you opened a tin of beans from Wait Rose, one person did and it contained half beans, half, half corn. That would be like on the news. People would be bitching about it. People would be complaining about it, be on social media, but people are willing to accept that from their supplements. It's mind boggling, you know, that they don't even contain what they claim. Some of them have designer steroids that have never even been tested. Somebody just made it up in a lab. So, you know, you're, you are really exposing yourself to a potential for harm. And if you insist that your pharmaceutical be studied, then your supplement, you're putting it in your body. It should have that same standard. This is what I've really enjoyed about this book. And even on the front, it's called the menopause manifesto, but it says own your health with facts and feminism. And I have really enjoyed the fact that it is about empowering yourself. And as you're going to go through it now, most books take between six and seven hours to read. So you could look at this as like, I don't know, seven, one hour long modules that you <laughs> sit down and you, you read. But I mean, it, if you could have every woman read this, if this could be on a syllabus, is, would this be your dream, Jen? Yeah, absolutely. I think everybody needs to know about menopause. I think that obviously the people going through it do, but you know, everybody in society should know. Um, maybe that would help us change some narratives. But yeah, I, this in the vagina Bible, I think they should be on every syllabus, but obviously <laughs> I'm biased. 
Uh, to close though, if someone is listening to this and they are going through the menopause or they feel as though they are entering the menopause, what, and maybe they, they maybe don't think that they're being heard by their medical professional or they're just not feeling, they're feeling out of sorts. What, what's your hard, tough love advice, just your action plan for them? Well, I think that, so there's a, so if you're feeling out of sorts, I would write down what's bothering you and maybe it's going to take a day or two or longer, but, but instead of having something vague, try to really be specific. Like these are the three things that I would like to be different. If somebody had a magic wand, what would I like them to do? So try to be specific like that. And, you know, you shouldn't have to advocate for like that in the doctor's office, but if you're not being heard, you know, look around, see if you can find a different, a different GP, see if you can get a referral to a menopause clinic, um, because there definitely are people who want to help you. And it shouldn't, you shouldn't have to jump hurdles to get there. But the sad truth is, is sometimes you do. Brilliant. It's always such a pleasure to speak to you. And this really is wonderful. And I, I just think it's so clever. And yeah, thank you. (laughs) And I just, I love the fact that you, it's like this sisterhood of, um, let, let's all campaign for the same thing. Let's all feel really good and let's stop minimizing what we're going through and let's lean into it, empower ourselves with information and feel freaking amazing. Exactly. Come party across the Crimson Bridge. <laughs> I'm going to head everywhere. I, I imagine a superhero movie was filled with women who are transitioning to menopause and you and I can be standing on the crimson bridge, handing out cocktails to people as they come across. Welcome sister. Welcome. Welcome to the party zone. I am so here for that. And it will be, we'll be like the, the women from wonder woman. It will be a beautiful Island. There'll never right. be any rain, beautiful sunshine. But I like that big, long sort of bridge, like in Thor, you know, that yes. you have to cross to get to the Bifrost. To get to the Bifrost. So yeah. Yes. So that we're getting across that bridge where they all show up and we'll be like, Hey, it's the Crimson Bridge. Come by day. Will Idris Elba be involved? Yes. Oh. <laughs> I hope, I hope. <laughs> Well, this can be book three and we can talk about that offline. Jen, it's so good to see you. You look so well. Um, I can't believe it's been so long since I last saw you. But um, listeners, the links to the book, both the Vagina Bible and the Menopause Manifesto will be in the show notes, as will the links to all of Jen's social media and her website. But thanks so much for coming back on the show, Jen. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jen and me. If you would like to get in touch with me, I'd love to hear from you. Email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. You can also DM me on Instagram and Twitter where I'm at Emma Guns, or you can join the Facebook forum. There are thousands of your most excellent fellow listeners in there chatting about all sorts of topics from the menopause, from Gunter to business to fitness, whatever it might be. There are conversations going on in there right now. So do come and join us. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you on the next one. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, 
edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.